1: Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3.
0: Also, remember the cross. In, in verses, the next verses, in verse 18 to 22, Peter is going to illustrate the principles that we've been looking at over the last four verses using our perfect example. He's been giving His advice here. He's going to use Christ as an example of actually applying these things here. And verse 18, which follows is one of the shortest and simplest and one of the richest summaries in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross. So it says, what does the cross mean? Boy, you can speak volumes there. You can go through Isaiah 53 and pick up 12 verses that express the purpose of the cross. You can take all of Paul's epistle, you can go on and on. Here's a verse, one of the richest summaries of the cross, coming in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? For us, for the unjust. Why? That That might bring us to the cross. The law won't bring us to the cross. His grace and His mercy does. I love what Hal Lindsey does with the word grace. He says it's a mnemonic. For God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid the price so that God could draw you to Him. Because He paid, paid our debts. After His body and spirit had been separated in death. That's what death is all about. He was raised again, how? By the Holy Spirit. Wow. Yes, he really died. You and I can't grasp that. He really did die. And he was raised again by the Holy Spirit. That death was not a chicanery. It was not just all well, a little dip because he was supernatural and so no 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 don't. He died. Body and spirit separated. Raised again by the Holy Spirit. Then we get to a very strange verse coming the spirits in prison. Which spirits and who were they preached to? Verse 19, verse 18 is a great verse. You could take that whole verse and make a a study of it. I'll leave it to you to go through the notes and so on. But here, verse 19, we have a verse that's widely confusing many people over the centuries. Peter says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Is that he, who is the he, and who are the spirits, and where are they? Which spirits are we talking about here? When were they preached to? What are we talking about? The Spirit's in prison. Clement of Alexandria, about in the second century AD, he taught that Christ was sent to Hades in his spirit to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. That's what he taught early. Sorry, that view is inconsistent with Scripture. There is no conversion after death Anywhere. Some people try to read that into this. Big mistake. That's not what it's talking about, apparently. Augustine, a couple of centuries later, said that the preexistent Christ proclaimed salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. Hmm. That's a little more possible. However, Augustine is departing from the context of the previous verse. This follows, verse 19 follows verse 18, that's not accidental, one follows the other. He went and preached. Now we get misled by that word preached. It actually comes from Caruso to proclaim, and uh, not preach in the sense of seeking repentance, simply proclaim or declaration is what that word actually means. It doesn't necessarily imply repentance as its object. It can include simply declaring a victory. is, is, is Crusoe. Now, the spirits. The term is usually applied to supernatural beings, but it is used at least once, maybe more than that, uh, to human spirits. And Hebrews 12 is an example. And they are described in the following verse c- coming as those who were disobedient when God waited patiently for Noah to finish building the ark. We're going to discover that in Peter's thought here, the next verse is going to reveal what he has in his mind, is Noah building the ark. Okay? So let's take a look at that. See, they, the spirits had rebelled against the message of God during the years the ark was being built. God declared that He would not tolerate people's wickedness forever, but in long suffering extended the life of Methuselah, delaying the judgment by 120 years. Methuselah's life becomes a model of God's mercy, and it's the longest lifetime in the Bible, I think, deliberately. Since the entire human race, except Noah, was evil, God determined to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. Genesis, all this is out of Genesis six. The spirits referred to in First Peter three twenty may be the souls of the evil human race that existed in the days of Noah. The people that drowned in the flood. Those spirits are now in prison awaiting the final judgment of God at the end of the millennium. Okay? It's possible. The problem then remains as to when did Christ preach to those spirits? Given that that's what the spirits mean, there's two possibilities. One is that he visited them after the crucifixion, but not necessarily. Let's take a look at this. Peter's explanation of the resurrection of Christ by the Spirit, emphasized in verse 18, brings to mind the suggestion that the pre-incarnate Christ was ministering through Noah by means of the Holy Spirit, that Christ preached to to those those people in that era through the Holy Spirit in Noah, not as as a physical manifestation. The Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the ungodly humans who at the time of Peter's writing were spirits in prison awaiting final judgment. Those people that didn't listen to Noah that drowned are lost in Sheol awaiting the final judgment. And that's what Peter may have in mind here. And this presentation is, very, is, is the general one that most conservative uh, commentators tend to um, infer here. This interpretation seems to fit the theme of this whole section from verse 13 13 to 22 um, that is keeping a good conscience in unjust persecution. Noah is presented as an example of one who committed himself to a course of action for the sake of a clear conscience before God though it meant enduring harsh ridicule. Can you imagine Noah building this boat for 120 years? The ridicule. That that testimony that he was trying to give the people, all his neighbors, fell on, you know, on on blind blind eyes. Can you imagine having the structure in your driveway for 120 years? And the neighbors saying, laughing, because it had never rained till then. The flood was preached on for four generations. And certainly laughed at, in Noah's case, for 120 years. Until, of course, it came. But see, verse 20 adds to this, "...which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few," that is, eight souls, "...were saved by water." How many is a few? Eight. It's defined here in 1 Peter 3.20. But the point is, out of the entire world, some scholars estimate there must have been several billion people on the planet Earth in those days. But they were all evil. And God chose to save Eight souls eight souls. Once the long suffering of God waited in the day. See, Peter's mind is back then. The flood has postponed for 120 years. Remember, he's going to say in his next letter, he's going to remind us that the Lord is long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish. And that was his attitude back then. He gave them 120 years to get with it. They didn't. When? See, the, the timing of this is critical to understanding the whole the thrust of the passage here. In Christ's day, the spirits of those men whom Noah had preached to were in prison, for they had rejected the message of Noah. They had gone into Sheol. Hades in the Greek, Sheol in the Hebrew. That's not the grave. The grave is physical. You can own a grave. No, Sheol or Hades is a domain of the spirits where they're shackled. And they're waiting for judgment. They were lost back then, and they still are. Christ did not go down and preach to them after he died on the cross, as some people teach. He had preached through Noah already when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. The time that Peter has in mind here is back then, not something that occurred after the cross. Follow me? That's the argument here. That's the most common view of this. The when. For 120 years... Noah preached the word of God. He saved his family, but no one else. It was the Spirit of Christ who spoke through Noah in Noah's day. In Christ's day, those who rejected Noah's message were in prison. The thought is that Christ's death meant nothing to them, just as it means nothing to a great many people today who, as a result, will also come unto judgment. See, Peter's drawing a parallel here between the people that don't hear Christ today are in an analogous position as those that weren't paying attention to Noah's message back in Genesis 6. You with me? That's the thought that Peter has here. But it gets a little spookier. Some people, I haven't sold this hard, but I want you to be at least aware of this view, that these incarcerated spirits are fallen angels. Frederick Spita, in about 1890... He, in his commentary, applied Christ's proclamation to the fallen angels of Genesis 6. And this seems to be confirmed in 2 Peter 2.4. We'll talk about that in the next epistle. And also in Jude 6. That whole issue, the whole spooky side of Genesis 6. We do know that Christ did pass through the realm where the fallen angels are kept and proclaimed his triumph over them. And it's alluded to in Colossians 2 verse 15, and it's also alluded to in effect in Ephesians 6 verse 12. Wrestle not against flesh and blood, and so forth. See, so another possible explanation of this passage is that the spirits in prison are the fallen angels of Genesis 6 who consorted with the daughters of men going after strange flesh, as Jude verses 6 and 7 explains it. The word prison in 3.19 refers to the place of judgment mentioned in 2 Peter 2.4. The chains of darkness. And 2 Peter 2.4 ties that to the days of Noah also. That all ties together. And we'll take that up a little bit more in detail when we get to the next epistle. It was this violation of God's order to help bring the flood, which explains why Peter mentions Noah. See, Noah's flood was not just because everybody was sinful. There was a gene pool problem of the Nephilim. And that's a whole study you have to deal with separately. I want you to notice also when we get to verse 22, that Peter's theme is the subjection of angels to Christ, that's in his mind as he goes through here. These fallen angels were not subject to him, excuse me, these fallen angels were not subject to him and therefore were judged, because they should have been subject to him. Between his death and resurrection, Christ visited these angels in prison and announced his victory over Satan. The word preached in verse 319 means to announce and not to preach the gospel. Jesus announced their doom and his victory over all angels and authorities. Praise God. And it's likely that at this same time, Christ led captivity captive, as Ephesians 4.18 refers to it, rescuing the godly souls that were in Sheol or Hades, and he took them to heaven. And that's all laid out in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, if you want to get into the background there. The main point, whichever view you take of this passage... Let's understand this. There's not one hint here or actually anywhere else in scripture of anyone having a second chance to be saved after death. There may be sanctification occurs to the saved people after death. That's a whole study of the millennium and what may be going on there. But at death, you are either you're either you are saved or not. And there's never anywhere in the scripture a hint of Revising that, that's why it's so critical. That's what this lifetime is all about. Let's move on. The like figure whereunto even... Now he's going to change... Something, now he's going to talk about baptism. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you get the first... When, you, when Paul defines the gospel. We use that term gospel all the time. Most people don't know, couldn't define it if they had to. What is the definition of the gospel? What's the essential kernel? What is the... First Corinthians 15, first four verses. This is the gospel which I preached unto you, wherein you, you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. How that Jesus died according to the scriptures. Didn't just disappear, he died, but not only died, he fulfilled dozens of specifications. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried. Only Paul emphasizes his burial because he's going to make the same argument about baptism forthcoming in his epistle, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. What's interesting, Paul does not mention, he doesn't mention that he was a great teacher or a great example, that he healed and did miracles, no, no, that's, that's all true, but not the, not the point. The Gospel is that he died according to the Scriptures, that's what he came for, that, that death was planned before the foundation of the world, he fulfilled all the specifications, that he died, he was buried, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And if you have a pulpit in America that's not preaching the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross for us, you have betrayal going on from the pulpits, because that's what he—that's what we're called to declare. That's why he saved us in the first place. Like figure we're into even baptism. Now we're getting baptism, and it's—it's a. It's, uh, uh, by the it it's, uh, saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ validated the adequacy of that whole pro- the, that whole strategy. The, the like figure weren't even baptized. It's a, it's an image here. Baptism represents a complete break with last when one's past life. Just as the flood wiped away the old sinful world, so baptism pictures one's break from this old sinful life and entering into a new life in Christ. That's what it's intended to signify. It does not wash away your sins. Only Christ's blood does that. Many people get caught in this. Go too, they, they, they misstate it, unfortunately. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not going into the water that saves us, but that which of which baptism speaks. The resurrection of Christ from the dead. As we come out of the water, it's intended to be a type or a picture of being in Christ and being resurrected with Christ. He who sat down uh, unto death could say, "All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me." Psalm 42. By the way, Jonah really died. Many people study Jonah, and figure, well he's just the, he, he somehow survived the whale experience. No, he didn't. He died. Jesus said so, as Jonah was three days and three nights, of the so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights. the man, Son of Man was dead. Jonah was too, he's the type of that. Not a big deal, but interesting to understand that. Baptism is the symbol of what has already occurred in the heart and life of one who has trusted Christ as a Savior. It's a symbol. It's a public manifestation of your commitment. Baptism doesn't save you, Christ's blood does. But the baptism is your testimony, your identity with all of that is the point. That doesn't mean you dismiss it, but understand which is the cause and which is the result who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Wow, praise God. Jesus is thrown at God's right hand. He's not on his throne. He's on his Father's throne. That's going to be repaired, but that's where he is right now. And that's all through the Old and New Testament. Of course, Psalm 110, verse 1 is the key one, and Jesus himself uses that to confuse the Pharisees in Matthew 22. And then, of course, the epistle to the Hebrews... All through it, chapter 1, 8, 10, 12, hammers away that he's at the right hand and so forth. The seat of supreme honor to rule and reign over all creation. And Colossians, of course, hammers that aspect through. So what do we say in all this? Amen, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Some lessons from the flood. We've touched on that. I didn't want to, dis- I didn't want to garble up our baptism thing here. But some lessons from the flood. Jesus says in Matthew 24, As the days of Noah were, so shall the days of the Son of Man be. Now, I don't understand what he means there. You need to understand what the days of Noah were all about. There were three classes. I'm not going to get into the fallen angels thing. We can study that separately. But there were three classes of people that faced the flood. Three kinds. Those that perished in the flood. Those that were preserved through the flood. Noah has three sons and their four wives. Eight people, right? There are three groups of people. Those that perished, those that were preserved. Ah, those that were removed prior to the flood. Enoch was raptured. He was translated. There's some lessons here for us. That's a pattern. The, 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 the um, Greek model that most of us are victims of is prophecy is a prediction and fulfillment. Prediction and fulfillment. The Hebrew model is prophecy is pattern. And they study patterns. Well, here's a pattern we might learn something from. Enoch was removed prior to the flood. Well, he's only one person, you argue. So is the church. It's spoken of in the Scripture as the body of Christ. In Genesis 12, verse, between verse 5 and 6, there's that one of those gaps we talked about that in which we think of it as the ascension. No, it's the, it might be the rapture of the body of Christ. Like Enoch, this body, his church, will be translated to be with the Lord before that great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 4, and a number of other passages. And this may also be in view in that peculiar gap between verses 5 and 6 in Revelation 12. I'll let you check that out and come to your own conclusions. Something happened to Enoch when his son Methuselah was born. He was 65 years old, but then for 300 years he walked with God. What caused that change? See, after he begot Methuselah, he walked with God 300 years. He apparently had an incredible experience there. It was not easy to walk with God in those days. Wickedness was reaching its peak on the planet Earth. He was not at all politically correct. And his walking with God was not a casual stroll. Remember Amos 3.3. Who can walk together except they be agreed? Interesting concept in Scripture. When Abraham walks with Isaac up the hill at Moriah, they went in agreement. Your English translation says they walked together, the Hebrew says they walked in agreement. That's profoundly significant when you understand the of Genesis 22, etc. And likewise, somehow Enoch walked with God for 300 years. He named his son his death shall bring, because he got a prophecy that that would be when the flood came. When the word muth means his death, shalak means shall bring. His death shall bring is what methuselah means. And uh, the year that Methuselah dies is the year that the judgment of the flood came. His son thus was a prophecy. And you have a flood of, we have a whole briefing on that, and also check our uh, Genesis commentary if you want to get into that. Walking means progress as well as communion. If you're walking with God, you don't get ahead of Him, you don't fall behind. It's interesting that Enoch is the guy that utters the first prophecy quoted in the Old Testament, and it's of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it was prophesied before the flood of Noah. You won't find it in the Old Testament. you find it in Jude. He quotes it. In verses 14 and 15 of Jude, you have the first prophecy uttered by a prophet in the Old Testament, and it's of the second coming of Christ, interestingly enough. Now, it's interesting that Enoch apparently knew that his translation was coming, and he walked in its daily expectation. Wow. That's heavy when you think it through. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Hebrews eleven five. 5. Faith in what? Faith in his translation. Interesting quite interesting issue. What else could it be? I want you to notice something interesting. He did not withdraw from his temporary life. He occupied. What do you mean? He had more sons and daughters after Methuselah. He knew he was going to be raptured. He went on with life. He raised kids and sent them to college, even though he knew the rapture was close. A lot of people in the 70s, they got so excited the rapture was coming, didn't go to college. Big mistake. Because that was, believe it or not, you know, 40 years ago. Ooh. These are guys, now pastors and pulpits, and some of them went on to get education, and some re- regretted they didn't. By the way, Enoch was not found. His body did not remain behind. There's all these speculations. What's going to happen with the rapture? Don't know. But if Enoch is a f- f- foreshadowing of that, that means we're gone. There's no trace. We don't have false teeth laying on the sidewalk. We're gone completely, whatever. He was not found. Enoch was not found. There weren't his clothes in neat little pile on the street or whatever. He was not found because God took him. I think that's, it's that simple. How is the world going to explain our disappearance? I have no idea. It's got to be the most preposterous doctrine in Christianity. The only thing it's got going for it is that's absolutely clear in the Scripture. And in Peter's second epistle, he's going to further apply prophetic implications from both Noah and Lot in his next letter. So, next time we have our final session of 1 Peter, read the next two chapters, four and five, and consider these questions. Are we human flesh undergoing a spiritual experience? Or are we spiritual beings undergoing a human experience? What's the difference? Or is it the, that the result of the transition that we, is it result of the transition we call the new birth? Let you think that through for next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Peter is quite a guy, this apparently ignorant Galilean fisherman that was so bold and outspoken. We always think that ready, fire, aim. He always draws and fires before he thinks it through. Sometimes. Love the guy, impulsive. How he changes after Acts chapter 2. You see his epistle, his, uh, his sermons, in cha- uh, the first sermon in Acts chapter 2 and the second sermon in Acts chapter 3 are sk- skillfully crafted jewels of profound thought. This fisherman, you watch the Holy Spirit change a person to study Peter in the Gospels and then study Peter in the book of Acts and how different. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for his letters. We thank you for the lessons that you bring us through your Holy Spirit, through him. We pray, Father, you'd open our hearts and lives to these letters, that you would help us appropriate these things in our own behavior, that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you bring before us as we commit ourselves without any reservations to the service of our coming King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of First Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.